the Humanitarian Hub podcast, the place for the latest trends in humanitarianism at SOAS and beyond. Welcome to episode four of the Humanitarian Hub podcast recorded at SOAS Radio. We are releasing this podcast alongside the Humanitarian Hub blog to highlight the debates, research and current issues surrounding humanitarian work globally. Hopefully it will give insights into the kind of topics that will be covered in SOAS's latest MSc, Humanitarian Action, which is a two-year online master's beginning in October 2019. Now, last time I spoke with Professor Steve Hopgood about his latest article, When the Music Stops. Now, in this article, he talks about the way in which the humanitarian sector is likely to be affected by the changing geopolitical shifts and the move away from what he calls the liberal world order with the growth of powers like China and Russia uh, and the way in which that is shifting the ultimate power dynamic within the world. And he sees this as having a trickle-down effect to the humanitarian sector, uh, which he sees as ultimately underpinned by these liberal ideas. Now, that episode is still available, so feel free to go back and have a listen or any of our earlier podcasts, including our interview with Dr. Suda Pereira and Amy Jose in episodes one and two. But this week, I spoke with Dr. Claudia Seymour, who is an applied social researcher with 15 years of experience working primarily in conflict-affected environments. Her research specialisation include youth and child protection, alongside resilience to armed violence and humanitarian assistance. She has a wide and varied experience working with all sorts of organisations, including the United Nations, international NGOs like Oxfam, Save the Children, War Child, and she's worked in countries including the DRC, Burundi, Central African Republic, Liberia and Nigeria. But when we spoke a couple of weeks ago over the phone, Dr Seymour and I discussed her latest book, which is entitled The Myth of International Protection, War and Survival in the Congo. Now, this is part memoir, part consolidation of her PhD research and discusses her extensive experience working primarily with children affected by violence in the Democratic Republic of Congo over various years. And it's a very interesting and very readable book that provides insight both into her own attitudes to what was going on, but also her PhD analysis, which is a bit more removed and a bit more scientific. It's very, very readable, albeit quite traumatic, as it includes lots of very moving and upsetting scenes, which Dr Seymour and I discussed together while she sat in her home in France with the birds gently tweeting in the background. Alongside the book, we discussed many themes, including perhaps most interesting, her innate duality that emerged between being a researcher and being a humanitarian, and the way in which one almost has to occupy two different mindsets in order to be able to remove oneself from what's going on on the ground and to take a more theoretical and more analytical view to when you are actually on the ground when saving lives becomes the only real priority. It was great to get a real sense of Dr Seymour's wide experience from the Congo and elsewhere uh, and she now works as a researcher for SOAS as well. And it was nice to hear a bit more about this very interesting book and ask her about a few of the incidents that she brings up within it and the ideas that it has at its core. So I hope you enjoy episode four of the Humanitarian Hub podcast. Dr. Claudia Seymour, hello. Yeah, hello, hello. Uh, could you tell us a bit more about your background and professional experience? 
Okay, well, I suppose I started as a child protection actor, an international child protection actor. I worked first with the United Nations, with UNICEF, uh, initially in New York, then in Liberia. Um, and then I think as I was in Liberia working with children, um, I wanted to go to the possibly hardest places that I could find. Um, when I was in Liberia, I wanted to go for an even greater challenge. So I started looking for my way to get to the Congo, to the DRC. And once I made my way there as a child protection advisor with the Department of Peacekeeping Operations, I got fully thrown into what protection of children actually means in a zone of active conflict. Much of my work was dealing with the response to and prevention of grave violations of uh, human rights, children's rights. Um, that involved a lot of work with children who were engaged in the fighting forces on all sides. Um, it involved protecting children from the accusations of witchcraft and on responding to violations, uh, other violations of uh, human rights, and responding to um, sexual violence and rape. Um, in the eastern part of the country. As one can imagine, one quite quickly burns out after doing that kind of work. Um, so this is when I started my PhD. I found refuge at SOAS in the Department of Development Studies and Dr. Zoe Marriage. I had the great fortune of having her as my PhD supervisor. Um, and with her, we started working through all the experiences that I had lived through and the work I had done and trying to problematize why so much was still wrong in the Congo and why so much of international responses um, just weren't adequate to the needs there. And so from 2007 until 2013, I, I did my PhD. It was very sort of engaged on the ground field work, stints between Eastern Congo and London, and sort of ended up with, with this, this book, which is the, the, child, the myth of international protection. Now what I do is I, I remain an applied researcher. I continue to engage with policy and practice of protection, but more from, from a removed state and looking at what it is in the world and what we can do more in the world to redress the inequalities and injustices that, that continue. And so you talk there about your, your book, which has just come out recently, The Myth of International Protection, War and Survival in the Congo, which is uh, available online, I think now. And it's kind of a, uh, a nice collection of your thoughts and ideas and experiences through a both from your kind of early time in, in the Congo and then to a later uh, amalgamation of your PhD research. But I was wondering if you could maybe give us a brief overview of your book, talk a bit about how you came to write it and the ideas within it. Mm. Well, the book is part of the California series of public anthropology. So this is a series by the University of California Press. And this idea of public anthropology is really to, to make public the problems that the world um, is facing today. And so I got the contract for the book actually very early on in my PhD process, um, because with, with the editors, um, there had been a recognition that you know there is a need for applied research in the Congo to get the message out to to a broader to a broader audience um, so the book is not a typical academic text it really is sort of a, a text meant to be accessible to a broad readership um, to tell the story about what's what's going on in the Congo and to make the Congo relevant to the rest of the world so what it started at as the reason I wrote this in the first place was to tell the world about the courage and the strength of Congolese people 
who have really suffered for for so long. Um, and through that, I used narrative. So this this book really is is a collection of of the voices of of young people primarily, but but other Congolese as well. Um, but through the process, it became much more evident that it was a story not just about Congolese people, but a, a sort of a an anthropology of of a humanitarian, so humanitarian anthropology, if if you will. And looking at self-reflexively, very critically, about what my role is as, as an individual, what my role was as an individual involved in this suffering. So what has come out is actually much more a stronger critique of, of international actions in the Congo as um, a, a plea for increased reflection among aid actors and protection actors on the doing no harm. And finally, an appeal to to global audiences to understand how connected we all are, that the lives lived in, in Eastern Congo are very much about the lives that we are living here um, in the global north with all the comfort. If we have all this comfort and, and wealth, it's also because there is so much hardship and, and suffering. And I'd be interested to hear what Obviously, you first went to the DRC, you said, in 2006, and then continued to return doing PhD research. I'd be interested to get your ideas on how you feel things in the country have changed since then, or whether, in fact, a lot of things are very similar. Yeah. You know, so 2006, when I arrived, I mean, again, so peace had already been negotiated a few years before at a national level, um, but conflict was very much ongoing in the East and continued for, for years after that, in fact, um, and continues today. Um, but 2006 was a sort of monumental year because it was the first elections, uh, democratic elections, and Joseph Kabila came to power with much hope and fanfare and people really, I mean, we were I was doing sort of monitoring of elections to prevent sort of violence against children or mobilization of children by political political actors. And the lines of people just waiting and so, so uh, affirming their desire for change and for a better life was just, it was really in the air. Um, and I think the first couple of years, so 2006, 2007, um, there was a lot of hope that people really did believe that this was like the new era at last for Congo. But of course, Congo is, is Congo and its history is so deep and entrenched and things actually have not um, gotten much better, um, not for the majority of the population anyway. And so if you look at basic development indicators, there's, there's no significant change, um, neither because of the masses of international aid that are poured in, nor because of the tremendous natural resource wealth that is extracted from the Congo every day. That is not reaching um, the, the great majority of the population. Over 10 years, you, you get to see trends and, you know, education even getting worse in some cases. So 2019 and sort of levels of, of education access, quality education access, which can't even get there, but just access period um, still uh, poor or declining for, for many. Another situation that I, I sort of witness and, and talk about in the book is this the story of international responses to sexual violence. So in the sort of 2006, you started seeing the, the big gearing up of the aid machinery towards uh, the rape response. And Congo in that period came to be known as the rape capital of the world. And you had the very glitzy Hollywood and, and London led efforts to stop the uh, wartime rape, um, rape-free diamonds and, and all the rest of it, rape-free minerals. And that in itself led to massively distortionate impacts on the ground. Uh, one could only get aid if one was a rape victim. One could only get access to to basic uh, 
you know, health services or education support if one claimed to be um, a rape victim. So over the years, you saw sort of the, the valorization of, of women as victims, uh, the entrenchment of ideas of, as, of men as, uh, as perpetrators, which uh, the damaging impacts uh, are just, are, are just uh, desolate. Um, so finally, what else? What else? Yeah, it's, it's pretty. It's a pretty bleak story. Um, I think perhaps now and hopefully, and this goes to the next generation of uh, of young people who are, want to engage and be part of life in the Congo. I mean, there there are youth movements. There are sort of the the lutte pour le changement. So lucha. You know, there now that Congo is becoming increasingly connected through social media and the rest of it. Perhaps there is there are different ways of of engaging on the local level to help sort of get this ground up swell of, of activism that sort of people in our part of the world could actually help uh, young people um, access to. So that greater connectivity that we see now that wasn't there uh, 15 years ago, that that might offer one little glimpse of hope for, for a better life in the Congo. And you were discussing there talking about this victim complex, uh, especially surrounding rape and sexual violence, but also on a wider scale in violence in general and you spoke a bit about in in your book about this term is it vic- victimcy victimcy yes it's a term by Matt Utas that he sort of coined in his work with young Liberians uh, in West Africa sort of post their conflict and yeah so I was wondering if you could you could talk about this term and how you yeah. use it in your book and how it's uh, how the concepts used in relation to aid humanitarianism primarily mm-hmm. in the DRC but maybe in a in a wider context yeah, no, it's, it's this idea of, of victimcy. So it's it's actually it's quite affirming, in fact, of individual agency. So it's it's from the sociological sort of anthropology, sociology of, of conflict. So we're looking at how do agents who are living in such oppressive structures actually make the best out of the circumstances and the resources that are available to them. So it's about the navigating and the sort of the the restricted spaces in which in which young people live, and in a place like the Congo, there's there's two elements, and actually they feed into each other very nicely. It's um, on the one side there's uh, patronage and patron-client systems that have always existed in the Congo, and that you know this is a, a whole different literature on patronage. It's really interesting um, to see, but how then in a post-war or war um, conflict context like the Congo, how these systems have been quite uh, become quite dysfunctional. So there are so few resources um, available for a growing need. Um, and so how do, in my case, young people, my, in the case of my research, how do young people work on their position of weakness, the client in the traditional patron-client system, to try to access assistance um, or patronage or protection. So this is just a a Congo-Congo story. Um, Now, insert into that the humanitarian aid actors who are coming in with with their projects and their ideals and, you know, their targeting of beneficiaries. And this is a whole nother uh, serious problem. So who who is targeting, who's being targeted for project assistance, it is the most vulnerable. So when we're talking about survival, those who are, who can portray themselves successfully as most vulnerable are the ones who are going to get the aid. So this is the case with with the rape victim. This is the case with the quote unquote child soldier. So it's become sort of a commerce um, of vulnerability. 
And people know this, and young people have grown up in this in this environment. And so, by being a victim, that is a that is a currency. There is there is a chance to be actually to get your school fees paid or to get some basic health services. And so, what we've seen over generations is that this weakness, um, this self portrayal of weakness, is the only way that many can access help. And so, then weakness becomes valorized. And what that does to the psyche and the mentality of people over over generations um, is, is quite evident in, in the Congo today. And the humanitarian system just feeds into that and reinforces it uh, quite perfectly. So it's very interesting. So what you're saying kind of is actually the way you know, it creates a lot of very difficult ethical problems between who deserves the help, but actually it's starting to kind of self-perpetuate a exactly. idea that's being kind of continually reinforced of weakness on a, yeah. on a social level. But do you think beyond that in kind of culturally and at a national level? I, I, I would, yeah, I mean, from what I've seen, and so I was only in the Congo for 10 years, so this would be like very longitudinal over generations of work that you'd have, to, you'd have to understand. But surely there is a sense that the weaker you are, the more likely you are to get help. I mean, and we see there's similar debates about this in terms of the social welfare state in, in Europe. So yes, the, the impact are generational and are learned. Um, uh, and thus reinforced. And so by being, you know, all the values that could help a society to develop, to emerge, to are, are, are just are just sort of cancelled out by by this, this aid approach. So it, you're saying ultimately, and I think I kind of got that in parts from the book, which is the humanitarian system and the kind of Western dominance is in many ways perpetuating this further. I mean, there was one bit in the book that I was particularly struck by, which was this line from, I might need help with the name again, the Buddhist scholar Pema Chodron. Oh, Pema Chodron. Yeah. Pema Chodron, yeah, where she says compassion is not a relationship between the healer and the wounded. It's a relationship between equals. And so do you think maybe it, it, thinking from a humanitarian sense that the best way forward is to move away from this ultimately European ideal and uh, American ideal of doing good and being the benevolent benefactor in this relationship of patronage and actually to shift to a global understanding where actually we view everyone slightly more on an equal footing. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. You've, you've read perfectly what I want to get across. And this is, this is for me, this is a very, this is, this is we're working on very moral, ethical grounds of like what it means to be human. Um, and it's very difficult to make these critiques because, yes, people are dying. People are dying right now in the Congo for reasons that they don't need to be dying for. Um, it's 2019. There are solutions for every single problem. But this this arrogance, unfortunately, that comes, and that I was very much part of, huh? the, the doing good, you know, the, the mission civilisatrice, um, that was the colonial story as well, huh? Um, it continues today, and it is cloaked in these wonderful ideals. And Mark Duffield and others, sort of, you know, this this morality that comes with with aid and and humanitarian assistance, also comes with this 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 sort of patronizing uh, look at at the poor um, and people who who need to be helped. And what the the quote by Pema Chodron gets at is our equality. And this is, again, the, the ideals of sort of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. I mean, we all, we all understand this in, in a very deeply uh, human, personal, implicit way, um, but how it's actually 
enacted on the ground is very different. And so there is this, this great inequality. And then you bring the, the connection with, with the global systems. I mean, it's what I'm doing today, me as, as an individual, has as much to do and is, is having an impact on the life of, of an individual in the Congo. And I think we've, we've missed that. It's, it's just people are so far away that they can't really understand. Um, and so what we're seeing now, and this is, we'll perhaps talk about this more after, but the, um, the climate um, and migration movements. I mean, I think now people in Europe, people in the wealthy world um, are starting to see much more, ah, okay, we are, we, can, we can't just build walls. We can't just send back ships. We, we actually are going to deal with consequences of our actions in some way or form at some point or another. So again, this, this perhaps is, is leading to something more optimistic um, or not, or not, or it's just more closing down, um, building of higher walls and uh, fueling of, of more hatred and, and violence. Um, so we could go either way, actually. And thinking more on an individual scale in your position of existing in ultimately what is this moral and ethical quagmire where your every decision must really have huge ethical concerns attached to it. How do you personally manage in the situation of, say, being in the DRC where you are really caught between what ultimately seems like the right thing from a human point of view, but then you're also caught with this ethical understanding of what are the structural implications at play? Yeah, and this is this is the problem because this is there aren't easy answers, and I think this was and remains uh, one of my biggest frustrations with international aid and humanitarian responses is that as if there were easy answers to any of the challenges of of our times, and so what the humanitarian response is is it's let let's do guidelines, let's have standards, let's make everything sort of clear, black and white on paper, so that then we know how to how to deal with these very troubling issues. But the point is, these are dilemmas, and these are the dilemmas of of, of human existence. So um, I think it's important to continue to struggle with them. So I, I I continue to struggle with them today and every day in the Congo funded. Um, when you're in a conflict zone where the conflict keeps happening, and this is what I really try to get across in the book. There's no time for reflection, you know. So, so you can't really think. There's a there's a, a dying uh, child in front of you. There is a kid who might be killed if you don't get him off the front lines. You know, these sorts of life and death issues, which are what drive most of humanitarian responses today, always require action. Um, and so there is no space to reflect. Ah, you know, this is these things keep happening because of decisions that are made in capitals, um, because of industries that are continuing to 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 keep this conflict going. Um, so this is this is the problem of humanitarianism, and so this is why the space is needed to reflect. Um, for me, this is what the PhD was about. This is what the book is about. Others, you know, either. And, and it becomes, and, and I've actually had some some interesting feedbacks from from friends who are still very much involved um, in humanitarian and protection responses with with the UN and and other NGOs, and and they they my my, my book effectively is, is for students, um, but but for them um, because they are so caring and they are so intelligent and they're giving their lives to this this uh, sort of correcting of injustice. Um, but when they read my book, they they feel really slighted, um, and it's like you're getting at this almost religion you know i've like gone and sort of started dabbing just daggering into into their their actual deep fundamental belief um which i see increasingly are more like their religion which is actually based on faith and the faith that what they're doing is is doing good and because with this faith has come great personal sacrifices by critiquing it it becomes very existentially personally difficult and so that's part of why it also isn't happening what you were saying earlier is that 
lack of time for any real reflection, what's yeah. interesting in the book is when you include some of your journal entries while you're in yeah. while you're in the DRC. They have a very different feel to the rest of the book, which is this very kind of matter of fact, just recording briefly in short sentences what's going on. And then that coupled with the the reflections later on in the book, it's quite an interesting interaction to see for the reader, but also to, to see your personal almost change of mindset, I imagine. And I, I imagine that once that while you're in the DRC working in that environment, your complete attitude and mindset is totally different from when you're sat back, maybe, you know, sitting in the library doing PhD research. One cannot do humanitarian work and be critical at the same time. Um, so I think this is why there is a place for engaged research. This is why it's it's so fantastic that SOAS and the, the particular view of the world that SOAS take is so important and it's also constructive um, because I think we are all, all involved in this project of trying to redress injustice and, and inequality. So if we can really very seriously and academically start thinking about this massive industry that is is humanitarianism, um, there is hope that that it could be it could be improved. So finally, actually, I'll pick up on that because I think that's a really interesting point is you've obviously spent time, you could say, within a humanitarian mindset working within conflict zones, but you've also stepped back and thought more critically from a more scholarly point of view and looked to critique the kind of power dynamics at play there. And you were saying earlier about how often by critiquing it, these people who are maybe lifelong humanitarians feel that, you know, you're, it's kind of a religion that you're you're bashing. Do, do you, And you said about having to have different mindsets for for both roles but do you feel it's it's a benefit to be able to have both the scholarly insight and the humanitarian insight or do you feel actually to do humanitarianism well you almost kind of do have to believe it like a religious belief system because otherwise you won't be able to you know you'll start to pick it apart when you're removed from it yeah it's a very good question i don't i don't think i have i have an answer um because there are just such best interests and the systems are just such. I think the analogy that makes most sense for me is um, like with emergency room doctors, you know, in, in our part of the world. You know, so lives need to be saved and there are people who are saving those lives. And those are, for example, the emergency room doctors. Um, but then you need the others, the policymakers who are funding the hospital. You need the the education uh, actors who are, you know, working on preventive approaches to to all of this. You have the families who are involved in trying to to protect their children from whatever it is that might be led them to the emergency room in the first place. So perhaps there is a room for the life-saving aspect of this. Um, but then what we need much more is effort on the prevention and the redressing of the structures that are perpetuating the violence in the first place. And so this is what my work is, is sort of bringing, bringing to light, you know, why it is that, you know, the emergencies keep happening in, in the DRC. And, and what, I, what I struggle with with the humanitarian response is not that it's bad in and of itself, but it shrouds um, it obscures why this is happening in the first place. And it's being obscured by this sort of moral humanitarian imperative to save lives. So we're doing all of that and all this money and attention is being spent on that without actually looking at the systems of, of trade, of agriculture that are being decided in Brussels or Washington, D.C. or London now. And that that very much those decisions that are made by our elected politicians 
are exactly what is driving these conditions of of hunger and and uh, lack of education and the rest of it um, in Congo and beyond. Um, so that's where I think we need to spend much. That's where humanitarian energies would be better spent. Um, and that's what I do now. So I'm much more engaged in politics uh, as as a citizen in France and looking at what France is doing or you know where is my taxpayer money going? Is it indeed fueling the the armament industry? Um, which is, you know, creating the next humanitarian uh, crises in Yemen. Um, so then what is my job and my job as a citizen? And that's hard work. That's really hard work. It would be easy just to pay a 25 pound uh, sort of subscription to the Red Cross in Yemen. But what's that going to change? Um, so I think this is this is an education of, of citizens in the world, the wealthy world, who who actually could have a real impact by the decisions that we make with our with our own national and international politics. Dr. Claudia Seymour, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. The Humanitarian Hub podcast, the place for the latest trends in humanitarianism at SOAS and beyond.